Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cooper. I'm John Perry. And today on Future Express, we are talking about the replication crisis. So maybe you've heard about this. Um, there is apparently a replication crisis going on, primarily in the field of psychology, but really throughout the social sciences. So replication, what's that? Replication is when somebody has done a scientific study and somebody else tries to recreate that study. Right. So a crisis would be when a whole bunch of studies all at once seem like they can't be reproduced, implying that the original studies might have been flawed. Right, right. On Wikipedia, they call this a methodological crisis because it's basically what's happened is so many studies have recently been called into question that we're starting to wonder whether the basic scientific methodology that goes into primarily uh, psychology's studies uh, even works. <laughs> right, right. So why don't we talk about like a particular psychological so, study that has come into question? One of the first really big uh, sort of um, targets that got hit was this idea called ego depletion, which I think we've talked about before. I've talked about this on the air like it was a real thing because like many people, I had read this like summaries of the studies anyways and articles about them and assumed it was legitimate. And it, it definitely uh, was, you know, something that has been studied and has been shown to be there in multiple studies, but then recently uh, failed to replicate in several high well, So ego depletion though, let's studies. So, right. So what is ego depletion right. for people who don't remember or don't know? It's this idea that um, your willpower is sort of like a resource in your brain that gets depleted over the course of a day. And uh, which feels really intuitive when you hear it. That sounds right. Um, and certainly it feels subjectively this way um, sometimes. And some of the studies, right, were like they would uh, have someone abstain from tempting chocolates. Yes, that's one of the uh, famous ones. Which right? is an exercise of willpower, right. which supposedly would drain their willpower reserves. And then afterwards, they would have them uh, do like a difficult puzzle or something. And apparently, they're supposedly anyways, they would do more poorly on the puzzle after having their ego depleted by previously having to exercise this willpower to resist chocolate, say. Right. Yeah. Which it sounds like those things aren't related unless you, um, unless this theory makes sense. But recently, there's been a lot of um, attempts to replicate this and it hasn't been replicable. So it's possible that the entire thing uh, was due to just regular old sampling error um, and that this didn't really ever uh, get demonstrated in a uh, convincing way. Now, I'm not uh, enough of an expert in this to really judge whether ego depletion in particular um, exists or not, but it definitely seems like the confidence that people had that it existed was misplaced. Well, and that's just one example of one study, and exactly. it's a crisis because it's affecting tons of studies, Well, so, right, right. what happened was um, starting in the early 2010s, there were like kind of a lot of studies, and I... You might remember, I remember seeing a lot of just sort of screaming headlines like that this or that psychological effect turns out to be fake or doesn't replicate. And, you know, uh, and there were just these individual studies coming out and it was starting to alarm people. And some of one of the people who was alarmed is uh, was Daniel Kahneman, who's the uh, psychologist who's well known for coming up with uh, uh, the heuristics and biases. What's the name of his book again? It's uh... Uh, Thinking Fast and Slow right. is the one that. I most recommend for if readers who are interested in that rationality stuff. It's a really readable book about this idea. Um, and anyway, he's the guy who, uh, along with uh, his um, research partner, uh, Amos Tversky, pretty much first started looking into um, using controlled psychological experiments to figure out the ways that the brain is systematically irrational. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, well, you know, if the things that I've been studying are right, then you should expect that we have a lot of errors in our studies. So we should look. And he was seeing these things. He was saying we should look into this. Right. But well, because one of the big biases that he studied, right, was overconfidence. It's just one example, right? Yes. That is, is that related to what you're saying? That is one of the biases that he identified. 
that experts are often overconfident. Right. So that would, for example, Another imply one that, yeah. that he identified was confirmation bias, which mm. is that if you're looking for something, you're more likely to find it, essentially. And you might find it even if it's not there. And um, that's something that clearly plays a role here. Uh, and then another heuristic to think about, which is this is so, so much a rationality thing about the way people think, but it's more about incentives and the way the structure is, but there's a publication bias, or it's sometimes called file drawer bias, because mm-hmm. it's kind of an obvious point, but interesting things get published and less interesting things don't. And as you might imagine, a study where basically you do something that somebody else already did exactly the same way they did it, as close as you can get, and then it also just didn't work, is the least interesting study you can imagine. So quite often, those studies don't get published. Right, so positive results get published. Positive results often get published. Something happens. Interesting new novel things that you've tested get published, even though those things should be met with more skepticism, because by definition, they've been studied less. Right. Um, and then there's a, there's a third like sort of meta level where publication bias plays in the minds of researchers because people are not idiots, right? They live in this publisher parish academic world where they know they need to get something into a journal so that they can get a tenure track job. Right. So that causes the scientist, even sometimes unconsciously to choose a, a subject of inquiry that's more likely to lead them to an interesting positive result. And that's more like an economic incentive than a, than a psychological bias. Correct. Right. But that that could be very conscious. That could be conscious or about what we're uh, sort of assuming at this point is that this appears to also happen unconsciously because you don't see so much that the journals are sitting on failed replications as that those failed replications never get done and never get submitted. And most scientists, if you talk to them, obviously will say, well, I don't do that consciously. So there, I mean, I guess they could be lying, but I think there's a significant incentive argument here that publication bias doesn't just affect the output. It affects the input. Okay. Wait, so so just to summarize where we're at. So so basically uh, these are a bunch of the biases that would cause us to have a false idea about which, like what psychological effects are real, right? Because the se- the set of studies that we have is not complete, right? It's subject to all these biases. We're only mm-hmm. looking at positive results. We're only looking at interesting results. Looking at results where the people who did them are subject to confirmation bias. Yep. Uh, and that this would have been predicted by some of Daniel Kahneman's work. Right. So he, when he started to see some evidence of this, he was one of the people who sort of raised a red flag and was like, we should really look into this. Right. Um, he wasn't the only one. There were a lot of other people who, who did as well. And uh, a group called the OSC, the Open Science Collaboration, they decided to create a reproducibility project. I think this was back in around 2010. Um, that over several years would do a meta study of about 100 um do like a hundred new experiments and then try to replicate famous, particularly social psychology experiments. Like this ego depletion stuff. Like this ego depletion. Um, Another one that they apparently did is stereotype threat, which is this idea that people um, will sometimes do things that are against their incentives just to keep their own sense of what their identity group is like. Like the example being uh, black kids in inner city schools, not wanting to appear uh, as if they are smart and therefore doing poorly on tests because there's an idea that being smart is somehow acting white or something uh, or not, you know, so that's, which that, sounds very bizarre, but sounds a little bizarre to me, but it was apparently something that had been studied and was definitely considered true in these circles until recently and um, is another casualty of this replication crisis. And it really is a crisis because they expected to find some things were wrong, but they, were surprised with just how many things did not replicate. So that really is what set off the crisis in the community. Because when that project came out and it said, guys, we tried to reproduce all these studies and we couldn't reproduce most of them. We couldn't reproduce a significant amount of them. I forget the exact number, but it's crazy. And, you know, we have to have a serious hard discussion 
particularly inside psychology, but really inside the entire social science arena about methodology and what are we studying and, and do we really know any of this stuff? And I think uh, that's been the debate really uh, in psychology, but also in behavioral economics and in uh, anthropology and some of these other related fields. Right, because this doesn't just apply to psychology, especially if, if the mechanism behind this is some of the biases we're talking about, like publication bias, the fact that people publish their positive results, but not their negative results. Right. And so we see essentially a skewed set of results. Um, then that could apply across the sciences, literally to all fields. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and the assumption at this point is basically that it does to some extent. Um, the hard sciences, I think there's a, there's a wall where the, um, if you discover something that is important enough and it is a physics or chemistry uh, type discovery, um, it is going to eventually uh, get checked out in a serious way because people are going to try to use it, <laughs> basically, because engineering is going to get involved. And so I think that... You have to wrangle like... Like the kind of way that... Yeah. The way that the reproducibility crisis affects the hard sciences is like, with a, a a poor choice of a drug trial or with like an engineering pathway that dead ends. You know what I'm saying? But, right. but what happens in psychology is particularly pernicious and important because it goes into an academic journal. A journalist reads that journal and rewrites it for men's health or the newspaper or time magazine or something. And then it enters the public consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it affects how we think about ourselves, how we deal with other people. I mean, think about this ego depletion thing. Just as one example, how many times have you, you know, in your life, because you believed that, um, let yourself have a cookie after a tough day, where if you didn't believe that, maybe you wouldn't have made that choice. Yeah, yeah. So when I, right. yeah, it definitely affected me when I read about that research because right. like i mean this is literally everybody struggles with willpower it's like this is one of the most fundamental human challenges mm -hmm. so i mean there are just endless situations in my life where this would come up and it'd be like oh it's late in the day my willpower is lower now or like and one of the findings of the study was that right that you like can replenish your ego by consuming glucose or sugar right Right, so it had something to do with glucose in the blood. So, like, maybe I I, I seem to remember. Maybe that. you I'm should actually. I said right, but I'm not totally sure. I right. seem to remember that. I think you're. Right. I, I think that was. But I mean, yeah. the the thing is that I didn't fully understand it, uh, and maybe the whole thing wasn't even real. But it still affected how I, you know, lived certain days. Right. How you approached like your a, life. Yeah. Yeah, and I think people look to psychology. Um, you know, pop psychology, which is influenced by what's going on in the academic world to tell them how to live, especially today in our secular world where we're not asking those questions of churches and other right. types of institutions. It's a major institution that we ask how to live and what, and what's normal and am I, you know, do right. I qualify? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So yeah, absolutely. I think this is a major deal. Um, and, there's been some debate out there in the science world about how important this really is and how, and how great this magnitude is. And I'm not able to really judge those claims. What I will say is that I read the abstracts of the major argument against the OSC's project and their uh -oh. rebuttal of it. And I'll link to these against things. which project against the conclusion of the, uh, open science collaboration project, which said that we have a replication. Right. Crisis. So, so what's the counter arguments that say that we aren't having a replication crisis? So some people say it's happening, but it's not important because this is just how science works. That's one argument. Okay. And, uh, here's the, a quote from somebody who made that argument, which was, uh, years ago, somebody asked John Maddox, how much of, he was the editor of nature, the prestigious journal. Uh, how much of what the the journal Nature w uh, printed was wrong. And his answer was all of it, right? The idea being, uh, this is what science is all about. New knowledge is constantly arriving to correct the old knowledge. And 
so it's all wrong but next week it'll be less wrong you know that sort of idea right right okay so so we, we've crossed we've found like let's say ego depletion totally turns out to be false we've right. crossed it off the list right that's some type of progress well, that's some type of progress yeah. uh, the argument being well if we just keep figuring out everything that's wrong eventually we'll know the right things and i thought scott alexander who writes slate star codex had like the best response to that which was that it's still a crisis if you are a functioning uh, psychologist, let's say, who's trying to prescribe things to a patient. Um, if all of a sudden the things you thought that you could make predictions based on no longer work for you. The thing that he said, uh, the uh, uh, metaphor that he used, which I thought was funny, was to physics. So he said, it's essentially you're asking a... Uh, psychologist to do psychology the way you would be asking a physicist to do physics if the state of physics was apples sometimes fall down but equally often they fall up we can't predict which of a given apple will which a given apple will do at any given time we don't know why um because but it's not a crisis it's fine because in theory some reason for all that should exist Right. right right so of course we know that things happen and we know that there should be something to explain them but if all of our information goes up in smoke about why and it doesn't get immediately replaced with a new better theory then we're not really this isn't just science working this is something else this is like we have been fooling ourselves for a long period of time it's great that we're not fooling ourselves now but that's not in itself a solution to the problem we also need a new answer right right and so, well, because again, this could be such a, well, it does seem like it's potentially such a sweeping problem. Right. Um, right. Well, because psychology isn't just psychology. It's also a kind of foundational d- discipline. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, psychology to me seems like maybe uh, the most like foundational discipline within social science in the same way that physics seems like the most foundational discipline within the natural sciences. So, for example, like physics, you can think is like the most like low level natural science, right? About like fundamental forces and kind of a level up from that is chemistry, right? And a level up from that might be, say, biology. Biology, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Like the things get bigger and the emergent properties get more. Exactly. Right. Right? And in some ways, psychology feels like the bottom of that hierarchy in the social science sphere, right? Because we're talking about how literally how the human brain works. Mm -hmm. And I feel like things like economics... Uh, anthropology maybe sit a level above that and then things like history sit even a farther level above that right right yeah right. so it does feel like psychology is very foundational but i mean well that's just to to, to say that if psychology is shaken that shakes the whole tree right um because all of these assumptions in behavioral economics and anthropology and all these other fields come down with it but you you were also telling me before the podcast that there's you know signs of a replication crisis in in other feels entirely like biomedicine right yeah well so this is really frightening to me i mean obviously this is where the sort of futury part of this starts to come in and we will get to a futury discussion here so bear with us but i thought it was important to right say what this was there seems to be something of a replication crisis going on in biomedicine and that's something that we are really expecting to come in in a major way in the near future and if we have a methodological problem where we're using too small of sample sizes or other questionable research practices or these biases are getting in the way of getting truth out, then we could see significant, significantly slower progress than we would otherwise uh, predict in that field. And the particular place where I saw where the article that I'll, I'll link is, is making this argument is in cancer research, where uh, there's been all these attempts to use modern biotech, genetic sequencing, and things like that to... Um, fight cancer, mm-hmm. which is an inherently genetic problem because it's part of, you know, it's your own cells going haywire. Right. They have not had a lot of progress, but it's not just that they've been publishing negative results. That's fine. It's that there have been these issues of positive results coming out, getting published, getting a bunch of hype, and then they go into some kind of trial. And this is what I was saying about the hard sciences are a little harder to fool because then they get found out. I mean, when they try to actually use it to cure somebody, it doesn't work. Right. I, I think what happens in, in, in psychology is a little bit scarier in a way because 
uh, we can not know that ego depletion is not real, for example. Um, I don't want to beat up on that one, but it's just the one I know about. And then everybody can like walk around making oddly irrational decisions because they have this belief that's wrong about how they and other people work. Well, and I think to the extent that we have an explanation for why this would be happening, the things that we talked about, like the perverse incentives for people publishing stuff and the publication bias itself, uh, again, that's a mechanism that could affect everything and, again, make us... The tie-in with the future is it just makes us overestimate the kind of progress that we've made mm-hmm. and are going to make. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think this almost feels like a bubble bursting, right? Yep. Like in the economic sense, like it feels like there's going to have to be like a correction. Uh, and it's like at the end of it, how much knowledge are we going to be left with? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it, uh, to the extent that the hype cycle yeah. is sort of like a bubble. Yeah. This is definitely like a hype cycle crashing, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, of course you want to, the worst thing to do is to conclude that we should do less psychological research, right? Well, the correct response is to figure out how to like design the institutions of science to right. avoid this type of problem in the future. Right. Right. Well, there, and, and that problem is being worked on. Yeah, absolutely. By yeah. experts who I'm sure know a lot more about it than I do. But what they're trying to do is basically account for these kinds of biases. You know, the obvious things to do, like having double blind trials and stuff actually make a huge difference. Having large sample sizes makes a huge difference. Like large sample sizes for random psychological studies is, is I think, impractical for a lot of people to, right. to carry out. For yeah. a lot of institutions. Yeah. It, uh, and, and since we're mostly talking about universities here, not surprisingly, a lot of the subjects are college students. And that's sometimes fine, um, but sometimes it introduces all kinds of strange noise into the data. It is a stark reminder of just how noisy the data in social science is and how we have basically figured out how to deal with noisy data. Mm -hmm. The answer is use a lot of data, right? I mean, Google knows this, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things in the world work that way. And I think that the, to me, the best long-term ideal world approach to this is, well, we just need to get much, much more data. We need to figure out as many ways as possible to make getting data cheaper and easier. And Right, right. And, and the thing, if something, if you wanted to study something like willpower, so for example, we talked last episode about, you know, personal assistant software. Right. We all like already uh, engage with apps that track a lot of the things that we do, right? And try to serve us things based upon that. I mean, this is, this is clearly the trend. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about this with Kevin Kelly, this is going to expand, Right. So we're going to have more and more of these services that are tailored to us based upon monitoring us at a given moment and building a history of what we do and what we like and how we act, right? And that's a huge store of data, right? And right now, that all just is like sort of dumped in the hands of these few Silicon Valley companies that then use it mostly to sell ads against it, you know, sell it off to marketers or whatever they do with it. But it could be used for science. If there was a way to do it that, you could get people on board with it. They didn't feel like their privacy was being violated. Oh, you know, that's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, I mean, ultimately, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, to some extent, we saw a little bit of this. Right? Remember that whole scandal with Facebook? Did their little experiment? Yes. Um, right. Well, all these companies are, of course, doing science, but they're doing it the way a private in- firm does. Science. Well, they're doing it to maximize their ad revenue. For example, for example. They're doing it, yeah, yeah, they're doing it for business reasons, and they're not sharing the results generally speaking. Right. And the time that Facebook did share it, they got strongly criticized for it. Which in a way is bad because it's just going to make them not share in the future. It's not going to make them not do it. Well, it was genuinely creepy what they did. It was. Well, they wanted to see if you saw happy stuff, if you would be made happier. And if you saw negative stuff, you'd be made more sad. And it feels creepy and manipulative. I think it does because you don't know you're being experimented on. You're in an experiment and one half of that experiment was being made to feel sad intentionally, which is even worse, right? So I get why people were upset about it. Uh, yes. I, I'm not thrilled about it either, but I still think like that model actually is exciting, right? I mean, the the possibilities of somebody who has access to that much data doing a controlled experiment on that large a scale right. Um, is, right. is like a fascinating resource that maybe we should find a way to take advantage of in a way that doesn't creep people out. It's voluntary at least. (laughs) Yeah. And there's so much analytical experimentation you can do with data too, 
without even necessarily experimenting directly on people. Because there's natural, you know, the data will reveal all kinds of natural experiments that are happening anyway. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this thing had headlines like Facebook reveals newsfeed experiment to control emotions. I mean, this is why people went nuts because that sounds horrible. Right. And I remember hearing about it and thinking, well, they're not really controlling your emotions. They're maybe controlling your output of words. But I mean, you, you'd need a whole, I don't, I don't buy the, the output of the Right. Words. But the perception of it is bad. Oh, really bad. But Absolutely. yeah, I, I, I agree that it's maybe, it, you know, not as sinister as it seems, especially when you assume that like there's, you know, thousands of other times they did this and didn't tell us and Google's probably doing it all the time and not, and not telling us. Well, and the real sinister thing that they're doing is they're experimenting every day to try to make you look at Facebook. <laughs> That's the, which they, they, they that's the right. job. That's, we all know they're doing that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why people buy stock in their company. That's why, you know. I mean, but here's a model for how this might actually right. like turn into a good thing, mm-hmm. right? If there was some way that so let's say a company that's sitting on a ton of data, yeah. like Facebook, could make that data available to universities in an anonymized form. Yeah. Right. So it can't be tracked to specific users. Right. Or at least not easily. Yeah. Um, and of course that all the users using Facebook were made aware of this, mm-hmm. right. Maybe they had an opt out. You right. do like a organ donor style thing. Maybe they're like, they're opted into it. Like your data will be used for research by universities for the greater good and the advancement of human understanding. Right. If you don't want this click, if you don't want this click, no, but if you phrase it that way and a lot of people are like, yeah, it's fine. Right. <laughs> right. Um, a lot of people will be creeped out and click no, but you assume you'll still get a lot of people. I'd rather the university has my data than Facebook, honestly. So, <laughs> Right. That's the thing is I think when we're all disturbed about our data being used, we're disturbed about it being used to like sell things to us or used like for business practices. And like if we we're told up front this is being used for research, I feel like that would give us warm fuzzies and we'd be like, great, you right. know, or a lot of people might respond that way. Sure. I would. Um, so now, so that would be an awesome model if we had a system like that. I'm not sure why Facebook would do it. Uh, why they're, uh, unless they thought it was a, like a PR win for them. Right. Right. Um, to be like, we're making our data available to the world's universities. Uh, it could our, be that they believe in science because we're magnanimous, you know, sure. yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing it's more in Google's brand, I think to do something like that. Yeah. Um, although Facebook has done like open source stuff in the past, right. and things like that. I think they, you know, these big Silicon Valley companies have benefited so much from open scientific research that took place in academia, whether it was Unix yeah. or whatever it is, you know, a million examples. Um, so maybe they just have an ideology that they should support it. That's the only thing I could think of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, but the, again, they, they might be concerned about, you know, their, their users being upset or something. I mean, that's ultimately what they, their bottom line is, right? So if this was the kind of thing that, like, I'm imagining that people would could be made to be on board with something like this, but maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. Even if they made it voluntary, you know? Like, like opt-in, you're, you're opted like out unless you opt-in. Opt-in, but maybe it nags you three times before it stops nagging you about it kind of thing or something like that. Or opt-in and you get a little bit of, you get like, a, a tax something. credit or something. I mean, the government could help out here. Or even a Facebook credit, you know? Even, yeah. like a, even, like, a meaningless token inside Facebook, people might do it for that. Yeah. So, I feel like there's ways you could do it where people would voluntarily do it. And maybe you get 50% of the number of people that way that you would get opting people in. But that's still a gigantic number, right? If we're talking about billion right. people on Facebook. So, you know, in any company that has a significant uh, data trove could do something like this, right? I mean, right. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be them. So, uh, but anyway, shifting back to the replication crisis. Uh, so what do, we, what do we think of the seriousness of this? I think, honestly, this is a good thing in the sense that it's much better to find out you have been deceiving yourself than not to find out. <laughs> right. Right. So even though I agree with Scott Alexander that like, if I was a psychologist, I'd be like, fuck. <laughs> right. Well, you can't say this because, isn't bad. It's yeah. I mean, a lot of stuff has gotten through apparently and become common wisdom without being correct. And that is, um, and it doesn't appear as if, we have a solution to that that's going to make it stop completely in the future. But just the fact that we know about it is an important first step for designing better institutions and coming up with better ways. And just honestly, I think one of the main takeaways for me about this is just as a regular consumer of news, as a layperson, uh, you should be more skeptical of anything you hear that's social science. Related. Well, that's true. You know, I mean, this stuff gets hyped really hard and 
I always think of myself as thinking, well, I'm sure what they're saying is an exaggeration, but maybe there's a little truth underneath it. And we have to start thinking there might not be any, like there might not be any truth underneath it. There might this might just be an you know, a little bit of academic bias bubbling up to our cultural surface and until it's been replicated a, a ton of ways, we should be skeptical. Yeah. Well, and I should say like in terms of fixes for this problem and and this is one I think I've heard talked about, right? Is like some of this is cultural, right? Yep. So when you talked about the file drawer effect, mm-hmm. people don't publish their negative results well they don't publish them because they don't think anybody cares but if if suddenly everybody's aware that oh those things are valuable we need the negatives we need those on the record right 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 if there's somebody to add add status to those more boring yeah no i think someone is working on this job actually i I don't know what the project is that's trying to push the culture that way but but essentially yeah just like creating little badge values or like just finding ways to incentivize people to go ahead and like, you did the experiment, you did the work, you think it's not worthwhile to publish it, just do it anyways, right? You'll get something for it or like, you know, or just know that it's being encouraged, right? And that like right. shift the culture in that direction. Or if there was like a high status prize that came out once a year, like kind of like a Nobel Prize or a Pulitzer or whatever, right? That got given to the one team that... um followed a replication very tightly and disproved the original result. Right. Those are the, uh, the things you'd right. Something like, so, so then you would have a, a counter incentive for somebody who's, who's got two ideas in their head. Right. And they think, Oh, I could do, you know, I have the technical skill to exactly recreate John Perry's famous, you know, microphone experiment, or I could, do this more novel thing that's, you know, striking into a brand new field of research and maybe I'm only going to have a small sample and maybe I can't really design the definitive experiment on that, you know? Right. Right now, it's a clear choice for most smart people. You should do number two. And right. So in incentivizing the, the, the actual replication to happen earlier. Right. Yeah. But if you incentivize, and I think, right, I think a lot of this happens right in the scientist's mind because he's, again, he's not a moron and he's trying to get a job or whatever. And he's, he's going to say, uh, I'm going to do the thing that's going to get yeah. published. So, yeah. So, but if there was like, oh, I could do that. And if I, you know, if I do a real good job of it, like there's this other chance of recognition by a different means, then maybe you have more people choosing um, to, to do these studies in the first place, which is, I think, a big step. Yeah. So, I mean, it, ultimately, this is stemming from academic culture. So, academic culture needs to rework itself. Like, yeah. That's it's, the it's fundamental. A, it's a crisis in academia, yeah. for sure. As far as the media goes, the media has long had a tendency, even with things that are demonstrably true, um, of hyping them up and blowing them out of proportion and taking them just generally too seriously. Uh, being breathless about them. This is a common complaint. And I think it's a true one. I don't think it's just get off my lawn stuff. The media really does do this um, about every new cancer treatment, everyone, right. you know, it's for obvious commercial reasons. It's not like rocket science to figure out why this happens. Um, and I think it just, it would behoove the media to, uh, to the greatest extent it can inside its own incentive structure, hold itself back from that. Well, you know where where we see the same pattern, right, is in, like, tech news, Mm -hmm. right? We talked about this with Kevin Kelly. Right. Right, which is you have companies, you have startups, they have this incentive to raise money, uh, to appear like they're doing something interesting so they can raise more money. Um, And so they generate a demo, right, and they're incentivized to maybe obfuscate how much the technology is done versus they're just using smoke and mirrors to make it look like it it's done. Sure. Well, you know, there's classic, like the vaporware problem of like a sufficiently right. large company can fake a whole project just to. Right. Right. But, but let's say like, like I'm working on augmented reality contacts right. and they don't really work yet <laughs> at all, but I have some like principled concept for how like on a six year timeline with funding, I could make them work. Mm-hmm. And so I make a little tech demo of what they might be like that shows like the bare bones of what I already know, you know? And again, that's going to get picked up by, you know, the blogs and the popularizers as like, you know, this company has amazing breakthrough in like augmented reality contacts, 
you know, and it does take some digging to figure out that like, oh yeah, they, they, they made a video for investors and right. like, they have sort of an idea of how light works, you know, like, like one, like, exactly. On yeah. One, like tiny part of the problem yeah. that, you know, may or may not even be the bottleneck part of the problem or something. Right. right. Yeah. And, and so that also, I think ties this back to the future in the sense that this effect that we're talking about is just makes it seem like we're progressing faster than we are. I think this is how this actually directly affects us in this podcast, yeah. right? Because our first ever episode was about, you know, just sort of this vague idea of like technological progress and how fast it's moving. Right. Right. And I still will reject the notion that it's slowing down. I, uh, but I, but it's, well, I want to point out that this replication crisis does not exist in chip design right. or f- engineering. We're not getting products that are leaving factories and don't work. Right. But all I'm trying to say is that if you just curate your blog reader or your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed with the newest in science, whether that means technology right. and engineering or whether it means like psychology research or whatever it is, right? It does feel like, wow, we're learning a lot and things are really moving fast. And I think that can be deceptive for all the reasons we've talked about. Right. Some of that information can turn out not to be well vetted is essentially. Right. And if that's your information diet too, like it feels like progress is super accelerating. Yeah. Yeah. Which, so one thing that this is for me is it's a, it's a point I think on the side of arguments by people like Cowan, uh, not so much that progress is slowing. I don't. I still don't buy that. But, yeah. Again, I would still reject that but, premise. But that. Um, but part of his argument, if I'm not mistaken, is that progress in the future will be harder to achieve, mm-hmm. either because of the increasing complexity of the problems that are left, or because of the decreasing excess capacity of the new technologies, or mm-hmm. whatever. And I, I have been pretty skeptical of that. I mean, I haven't given that too much. I think it makes a little bit of sense, but this is, I think, one piece of somewhat weak evidence in that direction that this is, uh, that progress might be harder than we. Well, that might apply to psychology in the sense that like a simply explainable psychological phenomenon that applies to lots of humans, like we have willpower as a resource, right? like a nice, simple thing that you can explain in a sentence right. and put in a headline those kinds of insights about the human mind, it's plausible that we're running out of those, that there aren't a lot of those left. <laughs> right. It's plausible that there just simply aren't a lot of those. Right. Uh, since what we do know about human minds is that they're essentially, like, they're all programmed from scratch, <laughs> basically, right? Like, we... Human brains are pretty individual and, and different from each other along a lot of different metrics, right? So, again, if, for psychology, we'd be looking for these, like, true facts right, that are true across all brains, right? And also, like, again, the ones that are going to be exciting and make headlines and people are going to want to publish are going to be sort of easy to understand, you know, and, like, not too obtuse, right? Right. So it it does seem like there, yeah, there might be only so many insights like that to find. I think that is maybe the point here, which is that a lot of what we think of as being uh, common psychological knowledge is more like the successful memes that happen to have popped out of poorly done s- studies. And they're probably better, so better thought of as like a bunch of things that are intuitive and easy to believe than things that are true. You know, there's uh, something a little bit worrying to me about that with regard to the future, as far as our ability to, as a society, as a, you know, as the, the, the academic superstructure of the world to actually surface the real true things. I mean, the obvious other point is just like science is hard, right? Like psychology is particularly hard because you're trying to study human beings who are notoriously uh, likely to figure out that they're being studied and then change their behavior and do all kinds of things that are confounding. And right. Um, uh, when you're trying to come up with experiments to isolate these psychological effects, um, even in a perfect world, it's, it's extremely challenging. So I think part of the reason that we see this is the questionable research practices, like the small sample sizes and stuff. But part of it is just that it's tremendously difficult 
especially in these social fields. Right. Well, and we talked about the medical field, and even though that's more of closer to being a hard science, you're still dealing with people. Yes. And this, and you still have, I mean, all the challenges of studying people. Like, I mean, there's ethical res- restraints. Uh, there's oh, like, yeah. and there's like just, I mean, if you want to study a particular disease, you need people that have that disease and you right. need them to be cool with you trying something, right? I mean, that's not like something you have an unlimited resource of. Right. And you have governments and such who will tell you, even if people are cool with it, they might tell you you can't do it because, right. because people are not rational about their health. Because like if someone's going to die of a disease, they'll try anything. Right. So then that that's an even crazier ethical situation right. where you have a tremendous amount of power over them. Whereas if you're trying to design, you know, I don't know, a new algorithm for detecting faces or something or some of the other areas of progress we talk about right. that do seem like they're moving quickly. Right. Right. You don't have any of these constraints of like having to round up a hundred college students, you know, and like, Get them to sign a waiver and do that like, you know, multiple times, you know, right, like, right. or, you know, find somebody who has a rare illness. Right. You either s- search for the faces on the web like Google or you trick people into uploading their own faces like Facebook. Right. You yeah. don't you don't have the, you don't have the same kind of bottlenecks. Yeah. You can you can do both of those things with just technology without asking permission. Yeah. Really. Yeah. So, I mean, I think ultimately, like, I mean, the insight that Kurzweil had put out in his in his books, right, when he was preparing you know, proposing accelerating change as a concept, right? Was always that we would expect accelerating changes primarily in, in what he called information sciences, right? Yeah. And not in things that aren't information sciences. Right. And there's, you know, things like psychology could become an information science. It seems like psychology will become an information science, but it isn't one yet. That's it's, what I'm saying. This is, it this could is become sort of one. Proof. It could become <laughs> one. one. Right. We're, we're very much still in the physical yeah. analog world of, Doing things slowly with psychology, right? But when and you can I, emulate very, brains, that's when it really becomes. Oh yeah, and information. Well, that's the end game. Then you yeah. can set up all the experiments you want in the world, and they're basically all ethical. Well, assuming that assuming you know that you're okay with torturing um, uh, instantiated software. If you live in the Black Mirror universe where no one cares about simulated beings and is totally okay with being cruel to them, yeah. then yes. Although I, I, that's one of my problems with Black Mirror is I well, think that's not true. I think that like, that's I think true we, to an extent. I don't know that we'll necessarily bring the cruelty to the limits that Black Mirror is is plumbing, but. Uh, I certainly think some things that we find unethical for humans, we will find ethical for, um, for simulations. Right. Uh, especially if the ultimate goal is to make humans as a species happier and right. more healthy. But the, but the end game for psychology becoming an information science would just be, yeah, brains in boxes, simulated brains yeah. that you could do whatever you wanted to and copy and reproduce and look through the, the history and so on. Yeah. Um, and maybe we'll be there someday. We're clearly not there now. Yeah. And we're also not there with medicine, right? E- even remotely or like, you know, so. Right, right. And the other weird thing about medicine is that it's like you're interfering with an, um, with an, with a system that's un, not totally known to you, right? So there's like all kinds of unexpected things that happen when, when you introduce drugs or whatever into a body. Right. You know? Which the end game for that would be like simulated like simulations of how drugs work, right? Simulations of cells. I mean, things that people are working on, but they're not, you know, right? Obviously, I mean, having a huge impact, right? Yet. Biological simulation is something that's coming along, but it's not to the point where, like, that's the state of the art in medicine, right? Like the way we develop drugs is we test them on computers, and then I guess some drugs they do test on computers, but I, I think it's pretty um, early days for that sort of thing. So it does. I mean, this is when you talk through this. This does kind of explain why you know a lot of people in this whole futurology universe like you know have this kind of view that you know we might actually have artificial intelligence before we solve some of these more fundamental physical problems mm-hmm. and actually we would have to rely on the artificial intelligence to solve those problems for us right and, and and in a way that seems backwards right it seems like ai almost should seems like it should be the hardest problem right right um but because well we don't know yet maybe yeah yeah it also i think this also does put a little bit of weight behind this idea. This is me updating my priors a little bit that we can solve a lot of the problems we currently have with simply more people, either in the sense of raising more worldwide people out of poverty and bringing them into this sort of, you know, existing Mm. 
scientific fold or the more radical futurist version of having more people, which is like clone a smart person a million times and, you know, in a, in a simulation and, and let them solve the problem kind of thing, you know? Um, because at least some of the problems here seem to actually get worse with a larger academic community. So that relates a little bit to what we, we talked about last episode, which is like the competition for attention when you're like in a large global competition with a right. lot of actors. Right. And then the superstar effect that arises from that, where you have, you know, a few loud voices that, that right. dominate. Right. You have superstar effect. And then you also potentially have, you know, it's just another ad, uh, additional input to the sort of publication bias complex of problems. So what you're saying is like, th- there's a clear benefit to the fact that we, you know, you would just suppose, right, to just to progressing in these, let's say, physical fields that aren't information sciences, you know, to having more people in them, which yeah. objectively we have more people <laughs> right, uh, than we did, say, 100 years ago, right. um, more educated people, mm-hmm. right, more tools for those people, all mm-hmm. these things that you would predict would make them go faster, also better communication between these people. But you're saying there's actually like a a bad side to that progress. It seems that way. Yeah. There's some evidence from this, from the, from the replication crisis that a larger academic community with more individual people working for scant attention. Yeah. Can lead to this kind of problem where the truth doesn't come out because it's boring basically. Right. And it doesn't gather attention. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on balance, I would still imagine that we would be better off. I think I agree with that. But it's an interesting but it's not, set of effects. It's, I used to think it was basically like a 100% positive. And yeah. now I'm feeling like it's maybe 80% positive, but there's like a significant 20% negative going on. You right. Know? Or something like that. I mean, those are made up numbers. Those are not, <laughs> not a, I fixed zero value to those numbers, but just to mean like there's uh it it does make me a little bit more skeptical than that we can just throw minds at a problem and solve it mm-hmm. than I used to be because it seems like there's this emerging problem of keeping, you know, keeping order among the minds and designing for them a academic system in which truth can be found. It, it's a problem that's hard to even wrap my mind around that I really never thought of before. So I, th- I thought that Well, was- it's like increasing I mean, I guess like the more people you have, like the more complexity is in the system, right? And like the better your institutions or organizations have to be to to manage that, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't I, know if this ties into what you're saying. Yeah, but, no, I think that's basically another way of saying what I'm saying. Yeah, that yeah, people are themselves limited and complex, and then when you organize them into groups, there's limits to the systems that you organize, and in one in the currently instantiated system we're having this problem where far too often it seems uh spurious results right affect you know accepted as real right at least so i mean we uh, theoretically a good structure is possible but that's not something that we actually have proof of right at this point um so it may be and i think there's no this is there's weak evidence for this there's no proof that this is the case but it may be that it's not really possible to design you know, uh, that much better of a, that much more optimal of a structure than what we have. Mm-hmm. So if that is the case, if these are very fundamental methodological issues that, that interface very directly with the limits of human beings, mm-hmm. then it may be that we just have like a, um, a cost to our increasing size of our, our academic es- establishment that we can't necessarily wish away right, or, or design away that we have to, accept as a cost and, and pay for, you know, like pay for by, by somehow, you know, creating new institutions that fund, you know, uh, the kind of thing that is, that the rest of the the establishment won't fund. Well, so here's a really broad thought mm-hmm. maybe that we can end on. Okay. Right. Um, so, and I, I don't know if this is going to sound crazy or not. Probably will. Okay. Um, crazy. so the kinds of like organizational structures that you would need, um, in a tribe, right? Of say 30 people, mm-hmm. right? You know, th- or, or there are certain structures that would work, right? And then, you know, you go up to, you know, the size of a nation. Right. 
right? And you need totally different structures, yeah. right? Like it just, you have to sort of reinvent everything. Right. Um, and in some senses we're going, we're becoming more globalized, right? We've talked about that on this podcast, mm-hmm. right? Because our, really our technology is globalizing us. Even if we're not opening our borders and we're still existing in these nations that are sometimes fighting with each other. Right. Well, even our backlashes feel like they're temporary. Right. Right. There's still, you know, much more movement, especially of communications, Mm -hmm. but also of people, I would argue, Mm -hmm. um, than there used to be that like, we're sort of like at this birth, like we're, we're transitioning to being like a truly global culture. And that's going to need entirely new ways of organizing people and motivating people that we have, we would not expect that we would have figured those out at this point. Right, right. Right? Like we've had plenty of time to figure out the sort of like nation size thing, going back to empires of old, right? Or we've had a much more time to figure out like what that size of human being structure, like how that works. Sure, obviously right? much more time than the global world, which is, I don't know, right? less than 100 years old. I'm not sure if this is entirely on topic with the rest of the episode, right, but it's right. just a sort of an observation that, um, you know, as we connect the whole globe, we might have like a lot of just institutional design <laughs> to think about uh, yeah. on an order that we've never faced before and, in history. And, and in this case, it's almost like meta institutional design, right? Because right. it's like all the journals, all the, all the academic institutions all together and all the, and the media too are kind of to collectively responsible for the bad incentives and then you combine those with the heuristics of the individual people and right. you, and you get the crisis right so it's like yes there is a way in theory to design all those schools and all of those publications so that the incentives shift and i suppose in theory there's a way to design human beings so that they don't have those biases either because they have software that's running all the time that helps them avoid it or because they're genetically engineered to be more rational or something like that. So I guess there is a, I can definitely see a pathway, but those feel like humongous. Right. Challenges. And all I think- three of those feel like just gigantic. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's why it's a crisis. I mean, it really is, it really is making people, question i think the foundational elements of 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 the the academic discipline right now inside these fields all right well we've got sufficiently abstract and and meandered around enough so that means that this particular episode of review the future is over (laughs) i believe Uh, i i I declare this (laughs) this express episode about the replication crisis done someday we'll figure out how to end our episodes gracefully and and doing this many podcasts i think we haven't quite figured out how to do that you have an idea for what i should say at the end of the podcast email it to me and i will i will adopt it i think you're supposed to find like a theme to link back to the beginning or something i don't know this is what professionals do we talk until we're tired that's the way this podcast works but the sun's going down and i think it's time so thank you for listening until next time i'm john perry i'm ted cupper and you have been listening to review the future To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.